podcast starts. Hello, everyone. It's just me, T.D. Velasquez, but you can call me Dan, providing a little bit of a contemporary 2020 introduction to another nugget from the collective podcasting past of the And Now the Podcast Starts team. In case you haven't heard this week's regular episode in which Kirsty and I discussed Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee films, and in particular 1957's The Curse of Frankenstein, I should explain that you're about to hear the first discussion that Howard and I recorded as part of our Lee Cushing project when we also discussed that film. Three more of our old recordings about Lee Cushing films will follow over the next few days before we upload an all-new one about 1972's Horror Express next week. What you're about to hear was recorded five years ago, in May 2015, just one week in fact, after the death of Christopher Lee, the event which inspired us to get moving on this endeavour. And that's where the discussion will begin. First though, a bit of dramatic fun. You'll get used to this. Wake up! Wake up, Frankenstein! You have a visitor! You came. Well, thank God you came. I I could not refuse a condemned man his last request. I'm grateful for that, Father. Although I wanted to. After all, you are known to be a convicted criminal at Diabolus. But those charges are lies. And also a bit of a git in general. Well, that part's true. Now, give me my things or I'll strangle you. Why? Leave him alone! Oh, I I thought you'd left us alone so I could safely threaten the priest. You're still here. I am whenever I have a line. Then keep quiet. Give me what I asked for, priest. This sack of belongings was so large that there was no space left on my little donkey for me. All the way up the mountain he was practically crushed by the load while I had to walk beside him. Me walk! In that case, though the journey may have been damaging for your donkey, I dare say it was beneficial for your calves. Now give me the sack. What are these sinister items? Your backward mind would not recognize them. They are DVDs. DVDs? Yes. And the odd VHS. They represent the entire catalogue of films starring both Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. I intend to watch them all, one by one. That is why you made this last request. And then I intend to record discussions about each film, which I will make available via the internet to the people of this accursed society. But that's more than 20 films. You'll be in guillotine tomorrow. Then I shall begin immediately. Pass me the curse of Frankenstein. I shall watch it and then record the discussion on a podcast which will open the eyes of the people to a work of forgotten and transcendental genius. You are as insane as they have said you are. No, priest. I am a visionary. I shall create a discourse that will change the world. And who will create this discourse with you? What? Who are you going to be talking to in these recordings? No one. It's just me. Going to be a pretty dull conversation then, isn't it? Um... Anyway, I must be off. Good luck tomorrow. No, wait. Wait and watch the film with me. You'll enjoy it. Then afterwards we can both talk about it. Well, my donkey will be wanting to get home and... He'll be fine. The jailer's looking after him. No, I'm not! I told you to keep quiet. Please, Father. It's my absolutely final request. Stay with me until they take me to the guillotine. And I promise you absolutely I won't do an unlikely switch at the last minute so you'll get executed instead. Oh, very well. Which one did you say we'd watch first? The Curse of Frankenstein from 1957. Oh, good. It's been ages since I've seen that one. It will be good for us to watch the film together at this point. Then we won't have to worry about spoiling any elements of the plot in our following discussion. Oh, yes. I'm sure we'll spoil the heck out of it. Here we go. 
Settle back and enjoy. Frankenstein? Yes, priest? What are you in jail for, anyway? Scene setting. Today, because uh, sadly Christopher Lee died last week at the age of 93, which isn't bad. You know, and uh, but the last great horror star in a way. I was hoping he might make it to 100. To be yes, honest. I'm sure he would hope that as well. But uh, and I think he might be the only 93-year-old who died within six months of the release of his last big movie, which was The Hobbit. Uh, yes, um, I I don't know whether this is true or not. There, I've heard it said that he appeared in more films than any other British actor. So, and it, I can believe that because... He has more than 250 credits, doesn't he? That's quite a lot. Wow, yes. We should say that um, there are 24 films in existence which feature both Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. And the aim of this podcast will be to discuss uh, one of those films per episode. Yes. Um, so why are those 24 films of interest to us, Howard? Well, I, I, I suppose it's because I just love these films. I grew up watching these films, you see. And anything that you love from your childhood, you love the rest of your life. When I was growing up in the late 70s and 80s, these films, not just Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, but all those great classic British horror films made by Hammer, made by Amicus and other studios as well, they were on every week, you know, every Friday and Saturday night. And I would watch these films and, and they'd just be so exciting and so exotic and so fantastical and so dramatic and... and you just, you know, if, if you had a penchant for that sort of thing as a, as a child, then they were just wonderful. And I've and I, I watched them ever since. I don't think they're very well-made films, particularly the Hammer ones, are very well-made films, I think. I've been watching them again recently, especially the early ones. Uh, no, they're, I, they're brilliant, they're brilliant. I love the... I, and hopefully we will communicate some of this passion and some of this enthusiasm to you, dear listener out there, who perhaps hasn't seen some of these films, and hopefully you will see them when we talk about them. Absolutely. I hope that this podcast might be part of convincing people to try out some films which maybe they hadn't or the, or the ones that they'd missed if they're already fans of, uh, of, of these kind of movies. And I'm pretty sure that anyone who has some kind of interest in cinema or horror cannot be less than passingly familiar with the work of Lee and Cushing. It's very influential, the Hammer films. A lot of directors now, Peter Jackson and Tim Burton, were all kind of influenced by Hammer films. They watch those films and um, love them just as we do. Absolutely. Um, we're here recording in the marvellously named Castle Hotel, which seems somehow appropriate, on Oldham Street in Manchester. And some of the marvellous uh, atmospheric noises you might hear during the discussion yes. uh, are part of the, the delivery process going on <laughs> downstairs. Um, and, and we welcome this. It adds a bit of audio production value to our podcast. It's very similitude. Absolutely. That's a great word. The people at the castle have been uh, very kind to give us use of their upstairs room for an afternoon. Yes. And uh, we've set up our equipment in here, kindly donated by Rick O'Neill of the Noisy Bark website. There's a very impressive mirror in this room, by the way, that looks like something from a Hammer film. You can't see it, obviously, but I'm facing it, and it's, it's 
very gothic. There is a gothic ambiance to the whole thing, really. It's probably not for nothing that it's called the Castle yes, Hotel. Yeah. Um, so, to give a little bit of context to the film we're about to discuss, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee are, are both actors who, were they alive, would be well into their 90s now. Cushing might even Cushing be... Cushing would be 102. Older. Is that so? Mm. Extraordinary. So, their careers as actors began... Long, long ago, in the 40s, really. Yeah, well, um, Peter Cushing, I've been, I've been reading a biography, a very excellent biography of Peter Cushing, written by a man called David Miller. Uh, and Peter Cushing, yes, started in rep in the 1930s. He went to Hollywood. Peter Cushing, and this is, I think this is interesting, is the only actor to work with both Laurel and Hardy and Morecambe and Wise. And I think that's quite an achievement, as well nice. as all his incredible horror films. He's also, his contribution to comedy is also, I think, particularly significant. Yeah, he went to Hollywood, worked with Carol Lombard, people like that. Then came back, a very patriotic man, he came back for the war. Um, got in with Laurence Olivier and Vivian Lee, that company. that travelled around uh, Australia and all around the world. Uh, and then um, he got in, he got a job with the BBC, and he worked with the BBC fairly consistently for about eight, nine years, appearing in everything, doing a play a week. And then in 1957... Um, Hammer Films was looking for a leading man for The Curse of Frankenstein, which they were going to do. Uh, and they incredibly cleverly and brilliantly for us all, they cast Peter Cushing. Christopher Lee had been a um, member of the Rank Charm School. Oh, yeah. But he didn't get much work because he said he was too tall. He was taller than all the leading men. And they didn't like having somebody taller. So he sort of ended up playing very small parts and things. He's in a film called Police Dog. Which I've never seen, but I want to. He, get, he the gets, best title ever. He's a place of poli- he plays a policeman who's scared by a dog. Um, <laughs> which, curiously, wasn't mentioned in any of the obituaries uh, last week. Um, well, you know, yeah, indeed. That's one would hope. <laughs> they tended to dwell on, you know, the Poss- wicker man and the man with the golden gun and stuff. And Possibly the estate of Christopher Lee would uh, issue some kind of litigation if anybody mentioned police dog in, in the... <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm, I'm sure it's a very fine film. I don't know whether it's available on DVD. Uh, do, you, do you know that Christopher Lee only got part of the creature because Bernard Breslau was too expensive? I didn't know that. Yes. They needed somebody tall. Bern, uh, Bernard Breslau, six foot seven. Uh, so he's even taller than Christopher Lee, but he wasn't, or his agent said, no, he's not doing that. Uh, so Christopher Lee, okay. and again, brilliantly, got the part, and two great horror careers commenced at the Began. same time, in the Al- same film. Although we should say that Cushing and Lee already knew each other, and in fact, well, they certainly worked together. a number they, of films. Yes, they were in, both in Olivier's Hamlet, film of Hamlet. That I don't know whether in the same scene. 1948. And they're both in John Huston's version of Moulin Rouge with Jose Ferrer. But I don't think they're in any of the scenes. They don't meet in that either. So. Well, I think they certainly knew each other. And one of the things which endeared them to me as a, a, as a younger person, because like you, I got into these films very young. And, and the fact that they, were, they had this kind of linked career meant that once you found a film of theirs that you liked, you could very easily seek out other films that were likely to, to have quite a similar quality to them because they had the same actors and in a lot of cases not just those two actors lots of other technical people and creative people recur across the kind of British horror films of the 1950s to the 1970s so it's very easy to kind of follow up anything you discover with a similar movie and it was told to me many years ago that Cushing and Lee were, were, were great friends. Certainly they became greater friends as time went on because they worked together so often over so many years. Apparently they would phone each other up in the morning just to say Yes, um, apparently um, there was an interview with uh, Peter Cushing I saw quite a few years ago and he said 
He was in a film, is it called Captain Clegg or Fjord at Smuggler's Bay, or one of the ones where he's playing a, a villainous pirate or something. Uh, and he died. <laughs> he died. He saw, and um, Christopher Lee phoned him up and said, you were very good, and you rode the horse very well, and the expression on your face when you died was the same when they told you what your fee for the film was going to be. So that was a kind of, they would ring each other up and make each other laugh and, and do impressions and stuff. So they were, they were very, very good friends. And you can tell that, you can tell that from, although quite often they were sort of like um, antagonists. Crushing would be Van Helsing and Christopher would be Dracula or whatever. But um, they, were, they were very, very close. Unlike Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi, the other great horror film pair. The limey cocksucker. <laughs> Well, it was a bit of a one-sided feud because Bela Lugosi didn't like Boris Karloff, but Boris Karloff had nothing against Bela Lugosi. Mm. It's just that uh, one was more successful than the other. With, whereas, whereas with Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, it kind of Peter Cushing was the biggest star at the beginning, but then kind of after Dracula, Christopher Lee became a bigger star and always got top billing. So they they both kind of been top dogs. So maybe that was. I think ultimately. In the longer term, Christopher Lee was the bigger box office name. I think he, he I think was, he was. He, he had more of a crossover into Hollywood, um, and he, and even around the world, international um, movie making. Whereas Cushing wouldn't travel so much. He Cushing didn't, didn't like, like going abroad. Also, I just think Christopher Lee played Dracula, um, and he's the best Dracula by far. Uh, and I think Dracula is a more attractive character. It's mm. more attractive kind of leading man, sort of, and so he was able to play those sort of parts, I think. I'm uh, not sure I agree on, on that level, on the Dracula level, but um, certainly Cushing had greater form as both a romantic lead to an extent, because he'd done things like being in the BBC playing Darcy in yes. Pride and Prejudice, and also um, he'd shown great flair as a kind of conflicted protagonist with Winston Smith in the BBC's production of 1984 which went out in 1954 which was a live production but still exists yes. and is absolutely stunning viewing um, and only three years before The Curse of Frankenstein Well it led on. I just think like Peter Cushing was older so yes he was a romantic lead in the 50s but when Hammer really got going he was perhaps a little bit too old to play a romantic lead, a conventional romantic lead so he, he usually plays academics or professors or somebody's father or grandfather or something. But there is always um, a great energy about him. He's brilliant. He's so dynamic and so physical. To, to give the listeners a little bit of context about us here, I think we should probably admit guiltily and shiftily that we're, we're both actors to some yes. extent. And therefore, I think we probably appreciate things like the fact that because Cushing and Lee were great mates and had great respect for each other. There is a real sense that when they're on the screen together, anything can happen. You know, they trust each other, and therefore, because when they're playing antagonists, it's electrifying, Yes. Um, and, and you get a really strong confrontation, um, which you don't when it's necessarily when it's either of them with a lesser actor in other films. I imagine that there isn't such an energy between Christopher Lee and Chuck Norris, for instance. <laughs> or between Peter Cushing and Stuart Whitman in Shatter. <laughs> Shatter, which is one of my favourite films. Yes. Yeah. But it doesn't quite have the same vibe, does it, as uh, Cushing no. and Lee Aren't together? Even Cushing couldn't ignite Stuart <laughs> Whitman. Um, alas. Yeah. Okay, so I think we, we filled in uh, the backgrounds of their careers. Um, just a little bit more about Christopher Lee here. I think we should just talk about him just a little more, considering that it is just a week or so since his passing. Um, I, I should say that a, that a seminal tome in my development as a film fan was a book that my sister bought for me when I was 14, I think, 
which was the Virgin Guide to the Movies, edited by Derek Winnert in about 1995. Um, and it had profiles in it of the most significant fil- films of the century to that point, and also the supposedly the most significant stars. And although none of the films they were in featured in any of the, the list of significant films, Cushing and Lee were both included in the list of, of notable stars, and the summation of Christopher Lee described him as an intelligent actor of subtlety and depth, which I think is an entirely true appraisal. Um, an even better one, although kind of a backhanded compliment, but po- probably one that Christopher Lee might have appreciated, or maybe he wouldn't, but he was, he, he was a kind of pragmatic sort of man to some degree, I think. Was um, Barry Norman wrote a piece about him a few years ago, which he'll probably be digging out now and republishing it <laughs> something. Uh, it was in the Radio Times. Barry Norman described him as not a great actor, but an extremely competent one. Yes, that is a backhanded compliment, isn't it? I suppose it's. Uh, well, it, I suppose he was typecaster, wasn't he? He, he was. He was kind of typecast. There's a film called Jinnah. Jeb, what he's talking about mm. now, where he plays some kind of mystic or something or, or something. He plays yeah. Muhammad Ali Jinnah, the founder of. Pakistan, right, and the film was never released because lots of people in Pakistan objected to it and to his casting as as a Westerner and a white man. Um, but it it is for by those who have seen it, it's regarded as one of his greatest performances. Well, I just and I think some... he thought it was his greatest. Yes, that's that's why I mentioned it because he's he a film he was particularly proud of, and it was a film in which he cried in which he showed emotions that he hadn't shown in other films, which the part he was playing didn't allow him. Yeah, to show if you. I mean, I, I just, I mean, what I love about Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing is they play it straight. Yes. In these films, they do not ham it up. They're not winking at the camera or anything like that. They play it absolutely straight, which is what you have to do in horror films. In all the best horror films, people are just taking it seriously, and that's what you have to do. It's insulting to the audience if you don't, kind of thing. Nowadays, uh, horror films, they don't have those kind of stars anymore, sort of, which bring, who bring gravity to it and authority to it, the way, you know, Christopher Lee did. And, um, and I think it's, in a way, he was lucky because he lived long enough for all those old uh, Hammer films and Amicus films to be reassessed and to become sort of classics and to benefit from people like Peter Jackson and Tim Burton. The, you know, the people who watch those films are now making films, directing films, producing films, and they're using him. They used him because of um, his association. Peter Cushing and Vincent Price and Donald Pleasance and the other great horror stars didn't live long enough, really, no. to sort of to benefit from that. They he all died of, in the early to mid-90s. They, they died all in, in the 90s. They'd all be very old if they're alive now. But sort yeah. of, I can certainly see Peter Cushing and Vincent Price doing um, Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter, those sort of things now, because the people who make those films would be so influenced by... Well, I mean, a few years ago, um, Christopher Lee was cast as the amazingly imaginatively named Count Dooku <laughs> in Star Wars Episode 2 and 3. And yeah. um, George Lucas Classics. had apparently originally offered the role of Grand Moff Tarkin in the first Star Wars film, the 1977 one, to Christopher Lee, who turned it down. And it ended up going to Peter Cushing, which was kind of appropriate. I, I kind of liked the, um, the irony, I suppose, of the fact that uh, because Peter Cushing was in the first Star Wars trilogy, Christopher Lee was then in the second mm. And even in the third film, because it's set before the 1977 film in which Cushing starred, they wanted an appearance by the young version of Grand Moff Tarkin, the yes. character that Cushing played. And George Lucas, being the inveterate digital tinkerer that he is, mm. apparently did put some time and research into working out if they could grab some footage of Cushing from an earlier film and somehow manipulate it to make him look young and 
like Tarkin. That would have been, in 2005, the last Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee film, if they had managed to do that. Unfortunately, they couldn't get it to work. So instead, they got an extra who looked vaguely like Cushing from the back to stand next to Darth Vader at one point and do a very good Cushing-like walk. <laughs> it made me smile anyway. No, I keep going back to Dracula because I just think uh, Christopher Lee is the definitive Dracula. I love his performance as Dracula. I think, I think the first horror film I ever saw was Dracula, Prince of Darkness. And that kind of just started this love affair and this fascination with horror films. And he's, he, he doesn't speak in that film, but he doesn't need to. He has such authority. And, it, and Dracula's... I mean, there's one scene where he grabs a sword off Francis Matthews and breaks it. Mm. And I thought, my God, he's so strong, he's so powerful. How can you stop somebody like that? And when you're eight, nine years old, it, yeah, yeah. it's... Uh, so yeah, he's for me, he's by far the best Dracula. I don't think anybody else comes even close. And the thing about what you said about the fact that they, he plays it straight um, means that when he does appear in comedies or, or, or kind of spoof horror things, he still plays it straight. He plays yeah. it just the same, and it's incredibly funny. He's so funny as Dr. Catheter in mm. Gremlins 2, The New Batch, for, for instance. And he just does it in exactly the same manner. And in a way, this is probably why he, he would get kind of... Uh, the backhanded compliments like the extremely competent actor because he didn't need to or he wasn't asked to modify his persona much no. or, or do different accents or be chameleonic he could do those things it seems that things like Jinnah um, demonstrate that he could do those things if, if he had uh, needed to but um, instead he just did the Christopher Lee thing most of the time and it's incredibly good and it's, it's incredibly funny. good but he is typecast yes and you know he wasn't given the same opportunities that say Peter Cushing or Vincent Price were to play more rounded characters, more um, sympathetic characters a lot of the time. He is sort of usually playing, well, either playing the villain or playing rather pompous people or rather supercilious people. Even when he's the hero, he's sort of very serious and very sort of... He's very straight, isn't he? Yes. But that's what he's asked to be, so... Yeah, absolutely. And But I do think that because he worked for so long, there is a great deal of range. And even within, like, the horror genre... Because he had this background in horror, he later got to do things like, on the BBC, read M.R. James stories, um, which was interesting both because of the genre and because he actually knew James. And therefore, he plays this kind of creepy, avuncular figure, uh, storyteller, really well, and, and tells an entire story in this kind of college setting, and it's beautifully done. And he had lots of things like that, and lots of books that he read, you know, audiobooks and documentaries he narrated. He does have that amazing voice, but I just think he's one of the most... I don't know whether he studied mime or not, but he's an incredibly physical actor. For instance, sort of like in The Curse of Frankenstein, which we're going to talk about, he plays the monster, and he, does, he said he's going to play it as a brain-damaged child. And he does look like somebody who doesn't know how to walk and doesn't know how to hold himself. And his body language is so kind of, you know, like that. And then when he's Dracula, it's so animalistic and so ferocious. And he hisses and snarls. And again, when he, he claws his hands and everything. And then he plays the mummy, which is like this robotic figure who just smashes down doors. And they're three very different performances. Three physical performances. He doesn't speak as the Frankenstein creature, doesn't speak as the, the mummy. He speaks as when he's the Egyptian before he becomes the mummy. And he doesn't have very much dialogue as Dracula. It's all in the physicality, I think. It's all just the way he uses his body. And it, it's incredible. And, mo- and most British actors can't do that. Most British actors are, they use the voice. It comes from the voice rather than, you know, having to use their body. And Christopher Lee really, you know, sort of, as Dracula, he's just terrifying because he's, he's the way he snarls and the way he sort of jumps over tables and things. It's, it's, um, it's really very powerful stuff when you, when you watch the first Dracula film. He also has a great contrasting ability to be incredibly still 
The critic Leonard Wolfe, who wrote, I think, The Annotated Dracula, described him as possessing a quality of dangerous stillness, which I just think is, is wonderful. He's like a spooky spectre, really. He's just kind of standing there. There's a great scene in Dracula Has Risen from the Grave where he's just standing in a crypt. Nothing happens in the scene except he turns his head from one side to the other and there's some dripping in the, on the soundtrack, and that's it. But this, it's such a powerful and um, evocative, somber moment of this lonely... Because I think he's just stuck in the, in the crypt because it's during the day, he can't go out. And there's something really powerful about it. Well, that. even in Dracula 1972, which we all love, of course. Absolutely. Because we all love that film. Um, in fact, there's a Facebook page saying, uh, <laughs> we love Dracula 1972, which everybody should like. Right. Um, he's, he's in the crypt and he just kind of points... And the way he just points is so. The way he just holds, in, I don't know. I, it's hard to describe it, but it, it just looks unusual. It looks sinister. It, it, the way he points at people. It's. Um, I'll watch it again. Watch Dracula 1972. Well, we'll come to that. Um, okay, so in, in the um, 1950s, Hammer Productions in Britain had moved into the area of horror very successfully. In 1955, they bought the rights very cheaply to remake a a popular BBC TV serial, The Quatermass Experiment, and turned it into a film called The Quatermass Experiment because it had an X certificate. With an X, not E, just X. Experiment. That's what I meant. Mm. Uh, Thank you for for explaining. Um, And that was a huge success. And they followed it up in various ways with other black and white, moody, sort of sci-fi horror movies. But a producer had um, approached them with the idea of doing a remake of Frankenstein, a new version of Frankenstein. In fact, the first it would be the first colour version of Frankenstein. It wasn't quite the first colour horror film, because there have been things like Vincent Price's version of House of Wax in 53 and things like that. But it would be the first colour Frankenstein um, and this is, you know, a decade or so after Universal had finished their cycle of Frankenstein movies, which had gone on since 1931. 1931, um, so, Dracula. So, so cinema audiences were very, very used to seeing Frankenstein on the screen, but they'd never seen him in colour. And the producer, Milton Zabotsky, liked the idea of, of doing the colour Frankenstein. He approached Hammer with it, and then Hammer kind of wandered off and, and said, well, that was a good idea, let's do it. And they didn't uh, credit Zabotsky in any way, creating a a kind of resentment which led to him probably creating a rival film production company in the 60s, which we'll discuss in the later episodes. We're very glad he did that, though. We are, absolutely. Uh, So Hammer assembled its team, and the director, Terence Fisher, who had just done some melodramas, I think, at the time... Yeah, some second features. Those films that were made in, in Britain in the early 50s were used Hollywood stars that were slightly going downhill a little bit, you know, sort of like Paulette Goddard and sort of Robert Preston and people like that. Sort of thrill, yeah, thrillers. And, and not, not films that are particularly remembered these days. That's an important thing to note as well, uh, the fact that Hammer's early successful films had been headlined by faded American stars like Brian Donlevy and Dean Jagger and people like that. And... Frankenstein was the first film where they felt confident to cast someone British, essentially. Yes. And Cushing obviously had a certain amount of stature because of his TV work and, and things, but he wasn't a star yet. I, I did read somewhere, this may or may not be true, but I did read it, that Basil Rathbone was considered, I don't know whether he was offered it, but he was considered for the part of Baron Frankenstein. Again, sort of like a Hollywood star, but he was British, so he was a British accent. 
but they were sort of thinking about a Hollywood star. But then I just think they made the decision, you know, why import, you know, a star? Let's make our own stars, which they did. Peter Cushing, yes, he was famous from being on in lots of BBC TV plays. He was quite well known, but he wasn't a film star as such. But they cast him in the, in the lead and he became a star. And that's very clever. They made their own stars. That, that's, what, that's one of the many things I admire about Hammer is they, you know, so we're not, we're not going to pay for a Hollywood star. It wouldn't be right anyway to get an American to, to be in this film. Let's, let's use somebody we can afford and who can play the part well. And what they did was, I don't know if they intended this at this stage, but they certainly developed this style as they went on with other films, was they created a very English kind of horror milieu, even though it's supposedly set. Um, Switzerland, I think it says in the opening. I think there's a um, sort of some, you know, a beginning of the film that says in Switzerland, a, ba a baron or whatever. I can't remember now what it says, but Isn't it, it mentions Switzerland. It says about 100 years ago, yeah. doesn't it? So it's set in the, in the 1850s, which is um, 50 years or so more recently than the, the Shelley novel was written and is set, I think. Having settled on Frankenstein as, as the subject of their new movie, Hammer were in a slightly strange situation, which was that the book, uh, the Mary Shelley novel Frankenstein, is public domain. But quite a lot of the trappings of Frankenstein cinematically were owned by Universal from their cycle of, of movies in the 30s and 40s. Um, this prevented the creature from looking anything like the one that Boris Karloff played, for instance. And it also prevented Hammer from being able to call it Frankenstein. The film Frankenstein, they had to call it something else. I remember reading when I was about 12, I found a magazine about horror in my school library, which had a rundown of all the, Frankenstein, the Hammer Frankenstein films and why um, they were made the way they were. And I remember reading it being fascinated and also feeling like I was just far too frightened to ever watch these films. <laughs> they seemed so vividly gruesome. The magazine reproduced lurid photographs on, on every page of the most gruesome parts of the films and then kind of took you into the plot. And I, I just found the idea so chilling. And, and particularly, they highlighted the fact that um, in order to make it clear that Hammer were not in any way basing their film on the Universal films, the scriptwriter Jimmy Sangster created a, a, a framing device, which is this character, Baron Frankenstein, is in prison and awaiting execution and hoping to secure some kind of help or clemency he tells the story of what's brought him there to a priest uh, and then you get the actual story that everybody knows the Frankenstein story of a man who creates a creature uh, in flashback and I, I, I just remember fi finding that kind of so inspiring that, yes. that they kind of in modern terms um, you'd say they were thinking outside the box really Certainly, I, I think messing around with with filmic structure, narrative structure, is something that everybody does now, and it's kind of it's one of those techniques which is just used. But at the time, I think it's probably a lot less common. And certainly, the idea of of going back to a known story and a known text and and inventing a new stru structure for it was very bold, and kind of characterizes the approach to the whole movie and of and of Sangster's approach to the kind of material that he adapted for Hammer. It's The Curse of Frankenstein, the film, is like the punchiest version of the Frankenstein story you could want, really. It's such a bold film, and it's such a kind of brash, kind of in-your-face film. It's got the courage of I mean, that's why I think Curse of Frankenstein was so successful. I think mainly because it was in colour, 
I think it was a, probably the first British colour horror film. Because, I yeah, mean, nearly was. all horror films made before Curse of Frankenstein uh, were made in black and white. Black and white seems ideally suited to horror films. It's atmospheric, it's eerie, it's moody, you know? You think of sort of like Cat People or Dead of Night or all those classic horror films which use black and white photography to, to create a sort of like kind of really eerie, haunting atmosphere and it works well. And also a lot of horror films had low budgets, so they were black and white. And um, Hammer made this very bold decision to make this film because Quatermass Experiment and Quatermass 2 and the other were made in, in black and white. And they were kind of understated low-key films. So, you know, they could have kept going along that route and making more films like that. But when we do Frankenstein, we're going to make it in colour. We're going to make it shocking. It's going to be bold and big and brash and sort of lurid and vivid and, um, and shocking. And it was shocking. I mean, even now when you watch it, you can sort of uh, understand the impact it must have made back then, how shocking it must have been. Because I was looking at what other films were made in 1957 and it's all like light comedies with like John Gregson or, or uh, Peter Sellers and Terry Thomas or those sort of films. And suddenly this film comes out of nowhere in colour with severed eyeballs and brains in jars and, you know, dead bodies hanging from gibbets. With that wonderful word Peter Cushing says, gibbet. So, um, and surgery and all this sort of thing. And I think, Mike, this is, this is... And, you know, the critics really, some critics really hated this film because it was just ahead of its time. It was just so new and so different and so kind of bold and so unapologetically sort of vivid. And, and it, it must have made a tremendous impact at the time. Um, and it was very successful. It made I, absolute fortune. I think they knew that they were doing something that had not been done before in shooting this material in colour. And they really maximised the impact of that in the way it was photographed by Jack Asher. Um, in Eastman colour, just uh. um, God bless. Uh, you know, doing doing things like um, painting the grass to make it greener. Yeah, that's, that's what I mean. Like, it's it's so it, it's so just it is just so bold and so and it's a brave decision to make a film like that in colour at that time. You know, in the in the genteel fifties. Absolutely, because um, any notion of blood just attracts the senses, doesn't it? And there's loads of it in the Curse There is loads of it. There's a scene where um, Christopher Lee is shot in the eye and blood pours out, red blood pours out. In, in a black and white film, blood doesn't look like blood. It's just grey. But in this film, there's blood. And there's, yeah, there's a lot of blood and there's a lot of severed limbs and it's sort of... Um, and it, it is a very grim film. It's quite an unrelenting film. There's not much light relief in it which Hammer later used. They used, they had comedy gravediggers and comedy policemen and stuff. But in this film, it's, it's, there's not a lot of humour. There's not a lot of light relief. It is quite... The humour, such as it is, is kind of black humour, dark humour. There is it's dark humour. I think that there's a certain gentility, though, to the way it starts. You've got the opening scene, which is the Cushing Frankenstein in the jail, and he begins to tell his story, but then you flash back to his youth, where he's played by an extraordinary Melvin Hayes. Yes. If you can imagine yeah. Melvin Hayes as a young Peter Cushing, then that's... Uh... And he's an incredibly supercilious brat, a sort of 12-year-old aristocrat. But Melvin Hayes plays it really well. Yes, I he think. does. I think automatically, the start of the film, it starts with his um, mother's funeral, I think. And um, the first thing he does is assure the, the sort of dowager aunt character that um, her allowance will be continued um, on the first day of every month. And she goes, oh, thank you very much. <laughs> and um, it, he then just dismisses her. Um, he's incredibly businesslike and clips. And it's a great kind of funny introduction to the character. You know, and there, is a, there are moments of comedy like that. There's a lot of character comedy in, in the film. Like later on when there's um, a dinner party going on, there's a character who doesn't do anything else in the film, who just stands at the side 
Oh, when, when no one's looking, just drinking punch. Oh, yeah, yeah. So he sort of adheres to the bride and so his wife tells him off. Yeah, there, I mean, there is some humour, but there's not as much as... Uh, it is quite... I think it's, it's quite a grim film. It's, oh, it's, it's a grim and horrifying it's, story. Um, and, and what's wonderful about it is that you could feel the sense of doom growing in it. It took us years of unrelenting work to discover what we were seeking. And then, one night, out of sight and sound of the rest of the house... Our efforts were rewarded. Once we've got to the point in the story where Frankenstein is a is a grown man and played by Cushing, and he meets he he's been educated since he was a young man by the character called Paul Kremper, played by Robert Urquhart. Yeah, he annoys me, Paul Kremper, but we'll okay. come to that later on. Well, uh, we have um, you know we have the scenes of um, their early experiments together. And Frankenstein, you know, as we all know, as we're all familiar with the story, it's probably the most famous story of all time, is a man who becomes obsessed with the idea of reanimating flesh, reanimating dead flesh. And we have an early scene where he and Kremper revive a dog, a rather cute and clearly not dead dog, (laughs) uh, that's lying in a a puddle of water in their lab. And there is a kind of... um, There's a relatively light sense to it, even though we're in the era the kind of atomic paranoia era where you had colour B movies coming out of the USA like The Fly and things which were all about experiments going wrong. There's still quite um, uh, a sense of of hope and warmth I think in those early scenes in The Curse of Frankenstein possibly in, in great part due to um, the kind of nice jaunty music that James Bernard composes <laughs> in the background of all these scenes. Um, and it only gradually turns sinister. Yes. We can't continue with this experiment. Not here, anyway. What are you talking about? Elizabeth. She might find out. What if she does? Where's the harm? She is young, Victor. Her mind would be incapable of receiving such a shock. All right. You can't see the horror of what you're doing. At first, I was blind to it. And now? When you were away, I decided I could not continue with this experiment. I hope I can convince you I'm right. Change your mind, too. You'll never do that, Paul. In six months' time, you'll rejoice in the fact that you helped me present this achievement to the world. You'll be as famous as I were. No, Victor. Infamous. I will not help you. Not anymore. And I beseech you, give this thing up, if not for your own sake, for the sake of the girl. You're wasting your time, Paul. Um, Howard, you, you said earlier that Paul Kremper annoys Paul you. Paul Kremper annoys me simply because every five minutes in this film he says, we have to stop this experiment, Victor. It's evil. It'll only lead to disaster and whatever. And it's just, I don't know, I just find him a little bit sort of pompous. He's a naff and one-note character. He's very one-note I... character. And Robert Urquhart is a little bit... Because Cushing there, in that clip, he's, he's, he's kind of, he's beautifully spoken. His diction is impeccable, but at the same time the performance is naturalistic. Sounds real. Whereas Robert Urquhart's performance just sounds a little bit more, slightly more melodramatic. It's giving it a bit of theatre, isn't yes. it? Yes. You know? But I do quite enjoy his performance. The kind of overbearing nature of it possibly makes Cushing look better. Yeah, I know uh, why he's that. I know, I know what his uh, purpose in the film is supposed to be. But, and uh, well, that was your sympathies to side mm. with Frankenstein, despite the fact that he's doing horrible mm. things. And he's a, t- he's a, a, a terrible person. Um, I think increasingly so in this version. I think that... You know, in, in Shelley's original, he's he's an idealist and a driven man, but but essentially good. Um, in this version, they just pile on the things about him that are awful, like he's having an affair with the servant girl. Yes. 
certainly in what they they later made several sequels um, to this movie, you 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 quite quickly lose track of why he's doing it. He just seems to need to do this kind of thing, and because of Cushing's performance, he's magnetic in doing that, and you want to watch it. But it's like, what is it? What does he really hope to achieve? Yes. Um, in the first film, it's it's clear that he he wants to create kind of the perfect being, um, the most intelligent, the most physically perfect um, creature he can, and in, in a way um, elevate mankind by doing so. But the lengths, firstly, he goes to very strange lengths to, to get there. And secondly, soon doing it seems to become more important than the, than the results that he initially... Well, doing it, sort of getting one over on the people who are trying to stop him doing it seems to be one of the motivating factors, just to prove that he can do it, sort of in the later films, not in, not in this one. <laughs> now, Professor. Dear, oh dear, your hospitality is too generous, my dear Baron. On the contrary, Professor Bernstein, it is we who are in your debt. When Victor told me that you had accepted our invitation, I was overjoyed. You honour me, Miss Elizabeth. Not only overjoyed because you were to stay with us, but because your presence at dinner tonight would ensure my Victor's presence. Elizabeth thinks I spend too much time in my laboratory. He's locked in his old laboratory for hours on end, Professor. He doesn't eat and he doesn't sleep. I, for one, think the world would be a far, far better place without research. At least, my world would be. She may be right, Baron. One can spend too much of one's life locked in stuffy rooms, seeking out obscure truths, searching, researching, until one is too old. To enjoy life. In the middle of the film, uh, Frankenstein invites his old tutor, Professor Waldman, uh. Uh, to, uh, to, to dinner at his house <laughs> with Elizabeth. Unbeknown to Elizabeth, who, who spends almost the entire film having no knowledge of what Frankenstein mm. is doing. Frankenstein's real reason for wanting Professor Waldman to come round is so that he can kill him and, and use his brain for his creature. And uh, we have this, we have this strangely tender scene with Professor Waldman played by an actor called Paul Hartmuth. I think that's how you say it, yes. Um, and you can sort of sense Jimmy Sangster laughing at the old bugger who doesn't <laughs> realise that he's about to be horribly <laughs> murdered. But I, I, and I think it's very effective because he's so lovable. And it's extraordinary, really, that um, Cushing's character is able to then coldly murder him and yet retain our sympathy. I would like to show you a painting just before you retire. It's this one at the top of the staircase here. It was purchased by my father and illustrates one of the early operations. If you step back a little, you'll see that. So in that scene when Frankenstein pushes Professor Goldman to his death through the banister very dramatically, there's an extraordinary piece of stunt work on the part of whoever is the stuntman playing Professor Waldman at that last moment who seems to dive onto well, this, his this own is head. One of, this is one of the reasons why this scene fascinated me, because a long time I didn't know how they did it. Right. Because it's not a dummy, it's a stuntman hitting the ground. And, you think, how do, and hitting first, the ground head yeah. first. How, how on earth did they do that? What did, and then I read, it sort of, it's, um, they put a mattress or something, or a, or a trampoline or something, something soft underneath the floor. So right. he's hitting something soft. But it, lo- it looks, and again, it's like they don't use a dummy. This, again, this is Hammer like going for it and being bold and being brash and being, you know, it's a man falling off, hitting the ground. And it looks 
So much better than if they just used a dummy or if they just cut. To... I have to say, unfortunately, Hammer were not so strict in later movies of not using dummies when oh, no, to no, throw no, characters you know, down so. things. But uh, it, no, you're, you're absolutely right. It, it looks incredible and it's so shocking. Um, and then it leads, following Waldman's funeral, we have a Frankenstein going to the crypt and breaking into the coffin and removing the brain, which leads to possibly my favourite scene in the film where Krempa confronts him while he's doing that and they have a tussle over the, the glass jar which Frankenstein has just put the brain into and it smashes. You see, Paul Kemper's done it again. He's ruined it again, for goodness sake. It's all going to be fine. It's all <laughs> Kremper's fault. When Frankenstein is uh, on the verge of supposedly uh, revived the creature, he's interrupted and the creature is kind of left on its own on the table starting to come round and you see its hands start to twitch. So then when... Um, Frankenstein returns to the lab. He finds that the, the, the creature is on its feet and tears off the bandages from its face and there's a crash zoom into Christopher Lee's hideously scarred uh, visage. That's a classic scene, isn't it? Um, and a, a scene that, that is still really powerful today, um, partly because of the, of the speed with which the camera zooms in mm-hmm. and the speed with which he, ter- he tears the bandages off. And, and, of course, they achieve that by undercranking the clockwork camera, which means that they didn't wind it up quite enough to run the film at the normal speed. So the, sp- the film was going through the camera slower than usual, so that when it's played back, the reactions look faster. Um, and that's incredibly effective. Basically, the creature tears its bandages off, sees Frankenstein, and immediately tries to throttle him to death <laughs> in, in a bit of um, subtle Jimmy Sangster writing there. To compare it with Boris Karloff, Boris Karloff's creature is a much more stylized, much more kind of lyrical take on the character. Whereas in the Hammer film, Christopher Lee is what a dead body would look like if you brought it back to life. It's like the real version. That's, that's what it would be like, you know, with all sort of bloody and, you know, hideous and everything. And um, Christopher Lee's not really given the same opportunities as Karloff is in the first film to be sympathetic and to, to be the victim sort of thing. He is mainly just stomping. He, do, he does the best he can sort of with it, but he's not really given the same opportunity to sort of um, portray the anguish and the suffering and the torment of the creature. He's much more sort of like uh, just the monster. And Karloff, you know, had two films to play the creature Mm -hmm. in, and certainly in The Bride of Frankenstein, he has a lot of dialogue. He has these poetic scenes where he talks to the the blind man and they share um, a pipe of Mm. something... Something sweet. <laughs> um, there's, there's comedy in there, and there's romance. Oh yeah, it's, it's a different kind of it's a different take on the characters, it's a different kind of film. That different kind of films. James Whale's idiosyncratic, yes. whimsical sense of humour makes those films. But I do think that Lee brings a lot of variation to this very simple role, and there yes. is pathos. There isn't really comedy. But certainly, I, I think he creates a creature which is frightening mm. in, in its actions and in its appearance. When he escapes from the lab, he goes wandering in the countryside. There's an implication that he kills a child and, and, and the child's father. But you don't see that. No. And you don't know what, exactly what happened. And certainly when um, Frankenstein finds him and Krampus shoots him, he's just kind of wandering, looking very desolate. And when, you, when he gets shot through the eye, um, somehow not dying straight away, he, he just kind of goes, oh, and, and puts his hand over his face. Um, you, I, I think you really feel sorry for him. Oh, yeah, no, whatever, what sympathy the character has, Christopher Lee brings to it himself. Yeah. It's not really there in the script. He brings that. And it's there, in, as you say, in the yeah, physicality. Yeah, the way is, he moves and just, and, and just holds his hands and everything, and the way he stumbles along, it's, it's from him. 
It comes from Christopher Lee rather than anything. No. The script doesn't give him the opportunity to sort of be sympathetic in the way Boris Karloff was. He, he does that himself. He has to do that himself. This your creature of superior intellect. Your perfect physical being, this animal. Ask it a question of advanced physics. It's got a brain with a lifetime of knowledge behind it. It should find it simple. Shall I tell you something, Paul? There you see the result of your handiwork as much as mine. Oh, yes. I gave him life. I put a brain in his head. But I chose a good brain, a brilliant one. It was you who damaged it. You who put a bullet in the wretched thing. This is your fault, Paul. Do you understand that? Your fault. Yes, I understand. But you won't win, Paul. And shall I tell you why you won't win? Because I shall carry on. If I can't cure it by brain surgery, then I'll get another brain. And another. And another. No, Victor. No, you will not. Just the visual in that scene is Frankenstein's trying to demonstrate that the creature has intelligence, so he tells it to sit down. <laughs> and Christopher Lee does this amazing sort of tumbling to the floor motion where he just basically squats while standing up and ends up on his bottom. Yeah. Um, but th- again, that's something he would... I don't, know, I don't know what Terence Fisher told him to do that, but again, that's his physicality bringing that sort of like... Absolutely. That's, that's a really effective scene, but it's sort of like... There's a lot of scenes where the creature is um, semi-incapacitated and, uh, and Lee kind of lolls his head around and really does create that physicality that you talked about of like a brain-damaged child. It's like somebody who's unfamiliar with his own body. Mm. That, that's just what it looks like, somebody who, who... And he is. He's somebody sort of like... He is a child. He's just been born. He's just been created. I mean, I think Carlos' performance is brilliant. We all know Boris Karloff is brilliant as Frankenstein's creature. But Christopher Lee is equally brilliant playing a very different kind of creature. They're both great performances. And, and Christopher Lee's got less to work with. Yes, and, and, and in a way, The Curse of Frankenstein, as I say, is the stripped-down version of Frankenstein. It doesn't have the philosophical complexity of Wales' film, or, or the series of films. Um, and it doesn't have the, 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 the strange interweaving of black humour that those films have, sometimes not so black humour. But it does have a pacey and kind of pungent collection of all the essential elements and the fact that the creature is frightening uh, and violence goes into the script the fact that it's uh, lonely and afraid and confused doesn't go into the script but Lee puts it in there just as the fact that Frankenstein is driven um, and ingenious and callous goes into the script but the fact that he's also charismatic and fascinating is Cushing's contribution. Mm. Even though Lee has no lines of dialogue in this film and Cushing has vastly more screen time, it's an incredible debut of a, of a double act of horror. It, it is. It's to think it's their first horror film together. And from this film, they, they became icons of, of horror. And, it's, and I, I read that Christopher Lee is only on screen in that film for about 10 minutes altogether. And yet the monster is so familiar, and it seems so prevalent. It seems longer than that, but it is only ten minutes. I think we ought to also mention uh, the lovely Hazel Court, Hazel who plays Court the female plays lead. And Elizabeth, yeah. Also had a bit of a horror film career after this. She um, Wasn't she in The Man Who Could Cheat Death or something like that? And, with Anton Diffring? Yes. I've never seen that. Um, and went to American work with Roger Corman in The Mask of the Red Death, particularly, oh, which is... a Classic, and she, she's excellent. And also, um, one of the great things about Hammer, one of their great strengths, is they amass this incredible 
group of technicians and sort of pe- people like Bernard Robinson who did all those wonderful sets and Phil Leakey who did the makeup and James Bernard who did the music. They had all these, it wasn't just the stars of this film mm. that made this film great, it was all the people behind the scenes. James Needs, their main editor, who was editor or supervising editor of basically every mm. film they ever made, I think. Does it, look. Absolutely, mm. it does incredible work with staccato, um, thrilling action moments that punctuate the film. All of their early strong, like Dracula and The Mummy, they all have incredibly great explosions of physicality, which is really supported by both James Bernard's amazing ratcheting up of, of orchestral pizzazz and James Needs just cutting and cutting. And the fact that you that, that a great deal of the film is is kind of sedately based, and you have these uh, beguiling but lengthy dialogue scenes, just Cushing and Urquhart talking to each other. Suddenly you have this exploding into action. Um, and you have really powerful non-verbal scenes like the moment, which we keep referencing, where the creature is shot in the head. Mm. Not just the bit where it's actually shot, but the whole thing where it emerges from the foliage and they're kind of watching it and you can see Frankenstein trying to work out if he can connect with it. And Urquhart just goes, I'm going to shoot it. (laughs) Well, that's an iconic scene simply because it just... Again, in 1957, that must have been so shocking. To see somebody being shot in the head, you, you didn't get that in any films. In, in American films or British films or westerns or anything, you didn't, you didn't see that as, as, as gruesome as that, as, as sort of full on as that. And that's kind of like sort of Hammer setting out its stall, mission statement, saying, yeah, these, th- th- this film is gory because it's a, go- it's a gory story. There is going to be blood, there's going to be, you know, okay. violence. It's one of the most intensely carnal stories ever written, isn't yeah. it? It's about the flesh. And as a result, I, I mean, for me, this film is the ultimate cinematic, possibly it's the ultimate adaptation in any medium to me of, of the Frankenstein story. I think there's a great many interesting ones out there, but this just, there's, there's um, a purity, or maybe uh, that's not quite the right word, there's a primal quality to this movie, which which I think just sums up the original story Well, no, so there well. is a purity. You take the essence of the story. Mm. of a man, of an obsessive scientist, wanting to revivify a dead body, wanting to create life, people trying to stop him, and he does it. I mean, he actually does it. I mean, you know, Paul Kremper there, irritating, saying, well, ask it a question about science or whatever. He's brought a dead body back to life, Paul. Isn't that enough? Does he have to go on University Challenge as well? I'm, I don't think there's any doubt whose side you're on. I, I, I don't like Paul Kremper. I, I, I don't like him. I don't think Hazel Court's character likes him either, particularly. She keeps telling him to go, so... Just to, to finish off discussing The Curse of Frankenstein then, I, I'd like to touch on the fact that you mentioned earlier that it was pretty much reviled by critics at the time. There's a great book, Halliwell's Film Guide, which was published throughout the 20th century. Leslie Halliwell, who wrote it, updated it every year until his death in 1988, and since then been updated by other people. But obviously all the films pre-1988 bear his original reviews, and they're marvellously pithy, and I do really enjoy them because he basically hates everything you you get the sense that if he says anything even vaguely positive it does at least really mean something because he's a miserable guy Um, and his review of the curse of frankenstein said it started the trend towards graphic horror from which we have all suffered since and allowed hammer studios to embark upon a 20-year career of charnelry but it did have a gruesome sense of style. I think he gives it two stars out of four, which in Halliwell's brain, almost nothing gets four <laughs> stars. So two is pretty is pretty much as good as it gets. And he did highlight 
Cushing and Lee for their great performances. What's the other quote that, that you hate, the C.J. Lejeune? Well, there, there was a critical C.A. Lejeune, C.A. Lejeune. Uh, who was a woman, and she said this film um, was one of the most disgusting films she'd ever seen in her life, and there's only two films that revolted her more, which I would like to know what those two films are, because I want to see them. But that would be, <laughs> that would be the reaction. In, in the same year that films like Doctor at Large came out and stuff like that, suddenly there's this... So in a way, although obviously I don't agree with it, I can understand why people, some people would have this reaction to it, because it is such a shocking film. They were just kind of unprepared for it. Even Quatermass, even Quatermass Experiment doesn't have this same... It's quite a shocking film, but it's, it's a lot more low-key. It's a lot more understated and underplayed. It's, again, it's black and white, so, you know, you, you don't see blood and you don't see... You know, in, you're seeing brains, you're seeing eyeballs in this film. Like, it's, it must have been sort of like for a British film to be doing that. Must have been so. That's what we do. You know, the reason I love this film is because it began this 12, 20 years of charnelry that Leslie Halliwell talks about. For us, that's a great thing that we've Absolutely. Um, that's why it's, um, it's an important film because it's the first proper gothic hammer horror film. It started the horror careers of Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, and Terence Fisher, and Bernard Robinson, and all these people. Um, but it's also a great film because it's, it's got such a great script. And it's just extremely well made. And like you say, um, the Baron, Victor Frankenstein, he murders two people. He does terrible things, and yet you're on his side. You, you, you want him to succeed. He's sympathetic, whereas the ostensible hero of the film, the, the Robert Urquhart character, who's trying to stop all this, basically is doing the right thing. He's, he's the goody. It just becomes a slightly irritating, <laughs> sort yeah. of self-righteous... No, I, I mean, I think, you're, as I say, I enjoy Urquhart's performance. But you never would want the film to be just about him. No. He's only there, really, to direct your attention to Frankenstein. And because uh, Cushing's character needs an adversary, really, to come out with his great put-downs to and, to, and to just bristle against. And the moment when um, you know, he explodes in fury when Crembo smashes the glass jar with the brain in it and says, if you've damaged it, if you've damaged it. <laughs> and there's that, that moment when you think... You know, yes, he's driven. Yes, he's callous. Yes, he's in in some ways a swine, actually. Mm. But there's actually a moment there of manic, demonic insanity, really, where you think this guy's really capable of anything. Well, that's a great thing about Cushing, isn't it? Because he is beautifully spoken. His diction is impeccable. His costume, the velvet smoking jacket, he looks immaculate. And yet behind all that... Is this passion? Is this is this sort of fanaticism? Is this mania? And it's there, you know, behind that English reserve. That's what's fascinating to me um, as an actor. Why that it's there? Okay, so you know, at one time he's very English, very restrained, and yet at the same time there's this sort of real passion and real sort of obsession. Again, as Van Helsing and again the other characters, there's this determination to sort of like do whatever he's going trying to do in the film. But there's this real sort of urgency and, and, and dynamism. And I think that the producers obviously picked up on the qualities of Cushing's Frankenstein character because the film was a huge success, as you just mm. suggested, and very quickly they produced follow-up movies in terms of more films in the same style, usually with Cushing and Lee, like Dracula was the next one and The Mummy. But they also very quickly made a sequel, a full sequel to The Curse of Frankenstein called The Revenge of Frankenstein, in which the returning star is not the creature played by Lee, but the uh, creator played by Cushing. 
no spoilers, but um, the fate which awaits him at the end of The Curse of Frankenstein doesn't seem to quite take. <laughs> um, and he, he, he relocates, changes his name ingeniously, I think, to Dr. Stein. That's very good. Um, and creates a new creature. And ironically, um, although I'm sure Christopher Lee didn't mind in the long run, but the creature in the second film is a much more Mary Shelley-esque um, complex creature. He does actually succeed in creating a, a perfect man who is like a gentleman. But because it's a horror film, for some reason, um, the creature, this time played by Michael Gwynn, quickly starts to revert to, to bestial ways and um, begins to physically decompose. Uh, and, the, and the film becomes... Uh, a race to stop the creature and a race for the local authorities who've discovered what, what Frankenstein's doing to, to track him down as well. Again, it's written by Jimmy Sangster and, and pretty much reunites the entire team from The Curse of Frankenstein. It's a while since I've seen The Adventure of Frankenstein. I don't remember it very well. I do remember there's a couple of comedy gravediggers, isn't there, with Lionel Jeffries yes. and Michael Ripper. And, that, and that's what I mean. There wasn't quite that sort of humour in The Curse of Frankenstein. No. It's like they've sort of introduced it a bit more. Um, and as a, as a result, I think the film does have a little bit less bite than the original, but it, it does introduce a more confident all-round cast and a more kind of playful approach to the material. You know, you, you, the, the supporting cast in Revenge of Frankenstein includes Francis Matthews, who's a great kind of second leading man as Frankenstein's assistant. And the female lead is Eunice Gayson, James Bond's yes, first Bond ever girlfriend. Yes. Um, and and one of the only um, women in James Bond films to recur in more than one film, I think. Um, and she's 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 really rather good. Um, and Gwyn is fantastic as the creature in that. He's one. a very good actor. So it, um, it's from, for, to my mind, it's it's not got quite the power of the original, but it's still a good film and and, and maybe a more thoughtful film than the original is. Then we have The Evil of Frankenstein a few years later, 64, I think. Yes. There was this period in the early 60s where Hammer had been hit by the censors a bit and had to pull back on their gothic output and their gruesome output. So they um, abandoned the Dracula and Frankenstein films for a little while. And by the time they came around to wanting to make a third Frankenstein film, they'd struck a deal with Universal whereby they could... Uh, make reference to the visuals and the style of the of the Frank of the Universal Frankenstein films. So the creature in the third film is very much based on the Karloffian archetype, with the bolts in its neck and the square head. Well, this is the film where it looks like Baron Frankenstein has made his monster out of paper mache. Yes, he looks like he's covered in old newspapers. From a distance, it looks like he's got a shoebox on his head, and it it because it's not Karloff. No. And, and the guy playing him, Kiwi Kingston, who I think he was an Australian wrestler. <laughs> yeah. So not quite in the same league as Boris Karloff um, when it comes to <laughs> acting. And it's a, it's a strange film, this, because, first of all, um, Peter Cushing's character is more sympathetic in this. Mm. Slightly more sympathetic. And it's, it's the, the hypnotist, Zoltan the hypnotist, Peter Woodthorpe, Peter Woodthorpe yeah. um, who's the villain, in a sense. He's the one that gets the Frankenstein creature to do the killing. Not, not, not the Baron. Um, but it's also, yeah, because they're using some of Universal's concepts, there are burgomasters and there are like mm. policemen in funny hats and everything, then in a way, sort of like, because Hammer had done so well by forging their own identity, making their own kinds of films, not being like anything else, but doing their own thing, and suddenly they're being like Universal. They're adopting some of Universal sort of like ideas and motifs and stuff, and it becomes less, I think, less effective. 
Yes, I, and the, I mean, I think it points to the fact that Hammer were at heart a commercial enterprise. These films made money, and ultimately the company would win the Queen's Award for Industry because they were so successful. Um, and they did things which allowed them to make money. Mm. And Quite it, right. In, in the late 50s, that meant making Frankenstein movies which had nothing to do with Universal. That was, that was what would allow them to succeed. In the 60s, that didn't necessarily have enough... Uh, that wasn't um, a limitation, and they could make more money by teaming up with Universal. So in a way, The Evil of Frankenstein, which is not directed by Terence Fisher, it's the only Peter Cushing Frankenstein film to, to, without Fisher. It's directed by Freddie Francis, who was a renowned British cinematographer, had shot films like The Innocents very beautifully, um, but with Hammer and Amicus Productions, began a career as a director. Um, and was probably the the most the second most prolific Hammer director after Terence Fisher. Maybe well, no, that's probably not true. But he, he certainly did. Well, he was a very prolific horror film director. Yes. He did all the Amicus things. Yes. How many Hammer films? Hammer horror films made? I'm not quite sure. He did one Dracula yeah. and and one Frankenstein mm. at least. So he certainly he he's kind of regarded as the second fiddle to Terence Fisher. I think. Yes. Um, but I th- I think the result. As a result, The Evil of Frankenstein, as directed by Francis, feels more like a sequel to the Universal Frankensteins, even to the extent that there are things in like the, the creature played by Kiwi Kingston is strongly implied to be the original creature that Frankenstein created, not the one, therefore, played by Christopher Lee, but the one played by Karloff. Um, because they, he doesn't create a new creature in that movie, does he? He finds it frozen in a glacier. Yeah, it's frozen, which I think happens in one of the Universal films. Yes. They, find, they find the creature frozen somewhere. Um, Son of Frankenstein, I think. Yeah. Um, although I've never seen it, so I could be completely wrong. I have seen it a long time um, ago. Uh, yeah, so... Um, it's, and it ends with a spectacular um, burning windmill, I think, in which Frankenstein is trapped, and there's a strong implication that he dies. Yes. Um, so well, there's a big... He's in this sort of... He's in his old castle. Oh, right. Which um, various people have stolen things from, apparently. Uh, and there's a great conflagration at the end, and the monster goes on the rampage and starts smashing up the equipment, and the place explodes. And um, Frankenstein's sort of like assistant, the young guy, says, Oh, they got him in Shandor the end. Shandor Ellis says, Oh, they got him in the end, or something like that. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's assumed that he's dead, that he's killed. And I, so I think I, I privately, although the Evil of Frankenstein is a the Evil of Frankenstein is a quite enjoyable film, but I like to pretend it doesn't exist, because to me the beginning of it doesn't relate to the earlier Cushing films, and the ending of it doesn't relate to the later ones because he's not dead, obviously in the later films. Um, although in the later films he has burned his hands. Yes. I can't use his hands in his experiments. It's, it's so, a perfectly entertaining film. It's an entertaining On its own terms, it's very enjoyable. Yes. Because there's too many talented people involved with it for it not to be. Duncan Lamont, the great Duncan Lamont, sort of plays the, the chief of police, and he's a hammer regular in quite a lot of films, and it's always great to see him. So it's, yeah, I, I enjoyed it, but it, it kind of, it's half, it's, it's not... It's, it was the first film I ever saw Peter Woodthorpe in. And I'm always pleased to see him in anything now. And he, he's really quite good as the evil hypnotist. Um, he's, uh, he was, before Andy Serkis, let's not forget, he was considered the best ever Gollum. Because he, he voiced Gollum not only in the Ralph Bakshi animated film, but also in the BBC radio series. He also played Del Boy's dad. Oh, right. In Horses, yeah. Very good. 
Uh, well, he's always great. He's so. he's wonderful as Max, um, the, uh, the the first pathologist in Spectrum mm. Horse. And um, these days, the uh, Morse prequel series Endeavor is being broadcast. And I really do appreciate the fact that the, they've got an actor to play young Max in it, who does look like young mm. Peter Woodthorpe and just seems like the same character. Doesn't sound like him though. He hasn't got Peter Woodthorpe's rich voice, which he sort of it's just so distinctive. Mm. He's kind of nasal, isn't he? As yeah. Well. He's sort of rich and nasal. Uh, yeah, yeah. Mm, that's interesting. But um, so the so the following Frankenstein film after the Evil of Frankenstein brought back Terence Fisher, and it's Frankenstein Created Woman, which is yeah, this one is an of interesting my favourites. And such, mm. although not necessarily because it's good, <laughs> um, it, it it has a lot of great qualities to it. I watched it again it's recently, really and it it was a lot better than I remembered it being. I thought I, I I slightly dismissed it because um, because Frankenstein doesn't make a creature yeah. in this. It's all about capturing the soul, which seems a very metaphysical sort of thing for such a rational atheistic sort of character to be doing. Mm. Usually, he's you know bringing the dead back to life. So, whereas this is all about the soul, cap, you know, catching the soul and in, in, so, which in, is a, it, it's it's a way of um, I know, I know you've got to keep doing different things to keep the Well, no, I think a lot of people have, have accused Frankenstein creating Crazy Woman of being a Dracula script that was mm. repurposed. And it was written not by Jimmy Sangster, but by John Elder, who is... The prolific John Elder. Who is Anthony Hines. Yes. Uh, the, real ne- the, the pen name of Anthony Hines, who was the producer of the... F- his real name is Anthony Hammer. I think there's... Um, <laughs> I think that's right, isn't it? Um, there's a lot of different false names going on around the Hammer family. Uh, yes. Um, and uh, the producers, Michael Carreras and Anthony Hines, both wrote scripts for the company under their pen names, Henry Younger and John Elder. Mm. <laughs> um, and yeah, so John Elder wrote kind of, he wrote the fourth Frankenstein and the fourth Dracula, and both have kind of similar plots in which a revenge is initiated against three men. Yes. Uh, yeah, I was just thinking it is, it is very similar to Taste of Dracula. Yes. Uh, essentially. But these three, yeah, but on its own terms, again, it works really well. You've got these three, like, Bullingdon boys who are very rude because um, sort of like the creature in this film is a woman who's just, who's just disfigured. She's just sort of scarred and everything, and, and they're making fun of her. And her boyfriend, whose uh, father played by the great Duncan Lamont, again. There he is. Um, gets executed, so he's sort of got that stigma. He sort of protects it. And there's this brilliant fight scene. I love this fight scene where they're in the cafe. And um, Hans, is it? The, the Sort of like the, the hero. Yes. He beats up the three um, sort of like toffee-nosed, toffee sort of public schoolboy types and really gives them a damn good hiding, which they deserve. And it's a sort of... Again, it's that sort of like hammer going for it and really doing a really physical sequence and having a proper fight sort of thing. And then the three, it's a complicated story, the three guys, the three Bullington boys, stab the girl's father. Because yes. he, they go back into the bar and he discovers them, so they kill him. Uh, Hans, the boyfriend, gets executed for the crime. Um, and Baron Frankenstein somehow is able to transfer his soul into the body of the Christina. girl who's committed suicide. Yes. Uh, and, the, and just for the hell of it, he corrects her disfigurement while doing that. Yeah, it makes her a beautiful woman. And the result, you get Susan Denberg with the brain of, um, hang on. Robert Morris. <laughs> Robert Morris. Mm. As a result, you get Susan Denberg with the brain of Robert Morris speaking with the voice of Monica van der Zyl. 
<laughs> who's possibly the sexiest voice actress in the history of British And film. one of the most prolific as yes. well, because she can be heard in all sorts of Hammer films and James Bond films and probably lots of other films as well. So. Well, I, I think you and I have talked about Nikki van der Zyl, as she's known before, and the fact that she's... We just mentioned Eunice Gason as in more than one Bond film, but Nikki van der Zyl is in more than one Bond film playing more than one character. <laughs> She, she romances Sean Connery twice as two different voices coming out of <laughs> Ursula Andress in one film and um, out of Claudine Auger in, uh, in another one. And then she appears as various minor characters as well. Um, I think she's done incredible work. I have no idea what she looks like. I no idea what she looks like, but she has the most brilliant name. Nikki van der Zyl. How Just how great is that name? No, absolutely. So. And um, every time I... The, in 60s and 70s films, you can kind of tell when someone's dubbed usually not because it's done badly but because you can recognise the voice because they and use the same person all the time there's a guy called Robert Rietti yes who his voice is so familiar he, he just dubs everybody but he also uh, sort of like minor characters who've got a line to say they'll use his voice if there's a radio they'll use his voice a newsreader or something it's just well I think if you watch the James Bond films and there's a character who requires um, a, a kind of some kind of European accent and he's they need to dub him, it will probably be Robert Rietti or David DeKaiser. David DeKaiser. Um, if it's an American character, they'll get Shane Rimmer. Mm. And if it's a woman, they'll get Nikki van der Zyl. And, and as a result, you can be watching any film from that period, and suddenly you'll hear, you may well hear this familiar voice, and it always cheers me up when it's Nikki van der Zyl, <laughs> certainly. Um, so, yeah, uh, and now Frankenstein uh, created Woman, which was... Um, which is a horribly offensive title, um, punning on the Ro uh, Roger Vadim film yes. and God Created Woman. Bridget Bardo. Um, it's, it's an entertaining, strange tale. It's not quite a horror film, almost. I, there's a kind of fairy tale quality to it. Yeah, um, and again, and again, the Baron is quite sympathetic. Yeah, he's always portrayed as being obsessive and being sort of ruthless. But he doesn't—he doesn't kill anybody in this film. In fact, he tries to stop people being killed. He tries to save Hans at the trial. Yeah, he said he couldn't possibly have committed this. So he's actually sort of like, in a way, not the good guy, but he's—he's he's sort of a sympathetic presence. And he doesn't die at the end. No, he just sort of walks off looking a bit wistful. Well, um, at the end of the movie, I should—we should say that once. Um once Hans's brain goes into Christina's body, it doesn't go well. No. Um, there's an, an extraordinary scene. She, she carries Hans's head around in her hat box, and at one point she produces Hans's head from the box and speaks to it in Hans's voice, <laughs> for some reason, um, and then kills herself. And the last thing you see in the movie is um, she's going to throw herself into a torrent. And Frankenstein appears and says, no, 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 come with me, we can make this right. And she goes, I'm sorry, and throws herself off. So, so I kind of love the character development of that he spends the whole film kind of trying to do the decent thing yeah, by various so people. And it doesn't work out and everybody dies. So he then, he, he just shakes his head and walks away. And, and I feel at that point he's going, right, I've had enough sod this <laughs> sod this trying to be decent man and then we get Frankenstein must be destroyed my favourite which it, which has the possibly the most memorable trailer um, tagline for a film which is uh, scientist sadist madman murderer <laughs> search everywhere leave no stone unturned make no mistake Frankenstein must be destroyed uh, I love this film even the title it's just so kind of brilliantly 
sort of unsubtle. Um, yeah, I love it. I, I, I think this is my favourite of all the Frankenstein Hammer films, including The Curse of Frankenstein. I love this one the best. I just think it's got such pace. I think Frankenstein is back to being a really He's ruthless, a yes, horrible, evil Even villain more in this. So. And more so than in The Curse of Frankenstein, but possibly even more charismatic. And yes. even funnier, he has some great one-liners gifted to him by the screenwriter Bert Batt, who I don't think wrote another film. He, I don't think he did. He was, I think he was, he was like an assistant producer or he something, was wasn't he? He was director on lots of British films like Zulu, for instance. Uh, I think, or am I thinking of Bert Bates? But he was certainly assistant director on lots of other Hammer films. Um... Yeah, I am thinking of Bert Bates, who edited Zoom. Um, no, I don't think Bert Bates ever wrote another another movie, although he assistant directed lots of other Hammer films. But I think it's um, a great, thrilling screenplay in which Frankenstein essentially blackmails a couple into yes. helping him with his experiments in a very Dickensian kind of. It seems of very. It's more Carl's up to back. date, isn't it? It's not in the sort of like the castles and the and. No, it's uh, it, it seems like in streets and in in a city, and it's everybody seems more up to date in a way. Kind and of. as photographed by Arthur Grant, you know, all the streets kind of glisten with rain and things. It's shot at Elstree. We should say that by this point in the series, um, Hammer had moved into shooting in other um, London film studios because their own studio, Bray Studios, where they shot all their early stuff, which is basically a converted country house. Um, had been sold by that point. So they'd gone into the conventional big movie studios and, and some commentators say that their films have a, a noticeably different atmosphere as a, as a result of that. But I think it definitely benefits Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed. Um, it, it really feels different. And even though it has a very familiar cast, um, Thorley Walters, who was in Frankenstein Crazy It's a Warner. great cast, so almost everybody in it is famous. Thorley yeah. Walters, Freddie Jones, Maxine Audley, Jeffrey Bailden, Peter Copley. Veronica Carlson. Veronica Carlson, lovely Veronica Carlson. A young Simon Ward. Simon Ward, Windsor yeah. Davis pops up. It's yeah. Frank Middlemass. It's, it's, that's what Hammer did. They got all these great actors in. Yeah. These very accomplished actors to play sometimes fairly small parts. And it just gives it that sort of authenticity and that reality and that sort of... There's real class to it. And... The creature in it, or eventually Frankenstein creates a new creature who is uh, Freddie Jones. Um, but he, and he's a successfully intelligent creature who remembers his former life, but he's now, his brain's been transplanted into a different body and he realises that he can never go back to his wife and things. And Jones brings a great deal of pathos. Yes, it's, it's, I think that's what, why I like this film so much, because the creature is actually quite sympathetic. Actually a lot closer to the creature in the book, mm. who is articulate um, and can sort of articulate his anguish and his, his, his sort of torment and, and all the pain he's feeling. And, and the, there's one scene where, um, because Freddie Jones has had another character's brain put in his, his head, uh, and he goes to see the wife of mm. the man, the man whose brain is Maxine yeah. Audley, um, and he has to hide behind a screen because he doesn't want her to, to see it. And it's, it's really moving, because he knows that, you know, he's, his brain is in a different body, and it's, you know, and, and there's, a, you know, there's a genuine note of pathos in this film, which you don't get in, in the others. Um, yeah, so I mean, much. there's a violence and a viciousness to it. It starts but, with Frankenstein cutting somebody's head off with a machete, yeah. and, it, and it just 
keeps, <laughs> which the, is brilliant. But the, there's a cutting, not to pun unnecessarily, but there's a cutting, there's a cutting sense of humour to it. Mm. There's some great one-liners. There are some nasty moments, some of which aren't quite necessary, like the um, the controversially inserted at the last minute rape scene. Yes, that it's the one. That's the one thing that sort of. Um, Kind of, it wouldn't spoil it, but that, that scene is so unnecessary. And you know, uh, you know um, that the producers of this film said, right, we need more sex. So they put in a rape scene, mm-hmm. which kind of suggests yes. a certain lack of sensitivity, if, uh, you know. And I, th- I think, yeah, I, I think... It, and it, it shouldn't be there. And it also, it, narratively, it shouldn't be there anyway, because there is this scene, and then nobody refers to this rape. Yes. Nobody behaves, everybody behaves as if it hadn't happened, because it was filmed later on and then, yeah. and then inserted, so... It makes no narrative sense anyway. And also, the, the character Frankenstein wouldn't do that. No. He's completely, he's sort of um, asexual in a way. Well, I don't he's think he's asexual, because ever since the first film where he's um, having an affair with the servant girl... For yeah, but it's, it's sort of a, that, that kind of aspect of the character has been lost by then. Yeah. It's just his whole life is about creating a monster. Mm, that's that's his obsession. Um, but I do think that there's quality to the scene in the sense that Veronica Carlson and Cushing get away with it and and play it with some kind of. Mm. Uh, they retain their dignity as actors while the characters lose theirs. Yes. Um, I you know, no, I agree with that. I just I just the scene shouldn't be there. Yes. It's it shouldn't be and it's unnecessary in every sense. But have, but apart from that, the film. Apart from that, it's a bloody marvelous film. It's on, a, I, it, Again, it was directed by Terence Fisher, and I believe it was his joint favourite film that he made, along with Dracula. And he really does bring an incredible pace. To it, it. It, yeah, that, it's so fast. And there's, there's that great scene where they buried a dead body in the garden, and then there's a, a burst water main. And, so, and the body's being uncovered. It's sort of like being revealed, and Veronica Carlson has to kind of drag it somewhere so it can't be seen. And it's, it's done so brilliantly that, uh, you know, you really get caught up in it, and it's, it's sort of... A few years, when I first saw this film, I was at uni, um, and I invited a friend of mine around for a, for a lunchtime double bill of Frankenstein Created Woman and Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed. Um, and it was a, a great afternoon, and he said at the end, you know, that he could see that Hammer films had been stereotyped and misremembered in a lot of ways, and, and to a certain degree, they were just really professionally entertaining films. And you can see that in those two films because they're so different and yet made out of the same personnel and the same inspirations. But you've got the fairy tale, um, you've got the fairy tale oddness of Frankenstein Created Woman and, and then the vicious black comedy of Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed um, right next to each other. And it's a thrilling transition between the two and they've both got they're both so strong and I, I do particularly love Frankenstein must be destroyed I think the first film is still my favourite because it's such a pure distillation of the story but uh, Frankenstein must be destroyed is a great film and then we only have two more films to mention yes um, on, and, and the first one is a film I haven't seen um, in 1970 there was a feeling that Cushing, uh, there was a feeling under, uh, there was a feeling in the Hammer head offices, I guess, that Cushing was no longer young enough to to hold the youth audience, and they wanted a sexier, younger Frankenstein. Nonsense. 
So they decided, I agree, so they decided to reboot it in modern parlance, the series, with a remake of The Curse of Frankenstein, which was written and directed by the screenwriter of the original, Jimmy Sangster, um, stars an actor who Hammer hoped would be the new Peter Cushing, Ralph Bates. Um, I've never seen this film, but suffice it to say that three years later, Hammer just made another Peter Cushing film and acted like the, the remake, which is called The Horror of Frankenstein, mm. never happened. Um, any, anything to add? I have seen, seen this film, um, and it's bad. It's very bad. And what's so sad about it is they've just made Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed. They've just made this brilliant film. Right, right, they've got it now. They know how to make a Frankenstein film. They know how to characterise Frankenstein, make him really nasty and really vicious and really horrible, really the villain, surround him with a great cast. Terence Fisher's on form. You know, it's a great script. It's, you know, in a way, it's like Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed is equivalent to Dracula, Prince of Darkness, which kind of jump-started the Dracula sort of thing. You know, it's brilliant. It's, it's so fast and so pacey and so enjoyable and entertaining. And then... They go completely the wrong direction and say, no, we, we won't capitalise on what we, we did with Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed. Make some kind of film. We will make a send-up. We'll do a parody, a comedy. And that in itself is not a bad idea, making a comedy. It's just, it's just a very bad comedy. It's not funny at all. It's just, it's kind of like adolescent humour. The only good thing about it is Dennis Price as a, as a um, sort of posh grave digger who doesn't actually do any digging. He gets his wife to dig the graves and everything. And Dennis Price is just being Dennis Price and doing his thing. And that's all. The rest of it is just... It's the, the, one of the jokes is uh, Frankenstein's got a, like a hand in a jar and he's trying to bring it back to life. And when he does, the hand makes a V-sign. And that's the level of the humour in the film. That's, Apparently they shot two versions of that for different markets. For the American market, they, they shot one where um, he, does, he, he does a single finger. It's uh, not... It wouldn't be very funny either way. <laughs> it's... Uh, um, all I will say in, in if anybody's interested in this film, it is on the Horror Channel. Yeah, it is on the Horror Channel, yeah. Um, and there's an interesting video on YouTube. There's a channel called Trailers from Hell, which is um, the channel created by the film director, Joe Dante, whose work we, we know and love, and who um, Christopher Lee, for instance, worked with a couple of times. Um, where basically uh, people sit down and watch trailers of films that they either admire or worked on and just talk about the film. And it's actually got the trailer of Horror of Frankenstein introduced by Brian Trenchard-Smith, the Australian film editor who actually edited the trailer and, and, uh, he, and also graphic designed the trailer and talking about how he, he actually thought it was not too bad an approach. Um, it's only two minutes long. So if you want an alternative viewpoint on uh, the horror of Frankenstein, go there. Mm. Um, so then, three years later, we have the last Frankenstein film and the last uh, Terence Fisher film, which is Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell. The only survivor from the horror of Frankenstein fiasco is the fact that the monster is played by the same actor in both films, which is Dave Prowse of Darth Vader Yes, fame. indeed. Um, the film itself is a is an entertaining uh, kind of misfire, I guess. I, I mainly remember the fact that um, a lot of emphasis is actually placed on Peter Cushing's assistant in it because he's played by Shane Bryant, another Australian who was another actor that Hammond was hoping would become a star, um, but didn't. He made two or three mm. Hammer films in the, in the mid-70s. Um, but... Uh, and Cushing in, a, in an odd wig <laughs> is in yes. a, an insane asylum. 
um, and with the collaboration of the people running the asylum is continuing his experiments on other patients in the asylum um, and creates a, a hulking Dave Brown shaped beast um, and that's all I can really remember apart from the fact that Madeline Smith is in it another Bond girl co-opted in using her own voice it is Madeline Smith's voice she's mute yeah. for most of it but she does speak at the end and it is her voice Nikki Van Der Zyl was done out of a job there no um, damn um, yeah, no, the thing about this film, I, again, I watched it again recently, and I don't, it just all looks a bit cheap and a bit tatty by now. Hammer, the budgets are lower, perhaps some of the people who worked on the earlier films are not working on it anymore, they haven't got those wonderful Bernard Robinson sets, the, you know, the, the production values are not so high, uh, and it all looks a bit shabby. Uh, and the fact that it's set in a lunatic asylum kind of adds to that adds to the sort of like the, the griminess of it and, and sort of like the shabbiness of it. It's, it's, it's not a very attractive location to, to a, for a film. And also the kind of the inmates of the asylum are just treated as sort of grotesques who come on and just holler and howl and, you know, when, when at various points. And it's, I don't know, it's just a kind of, uh, it's just a kind of, I don't know, it is, again, it's like, it's grim. It's, it's sort of, it's not. A, it's it's an unengaging film. I think it, it's it's sort of, it's like everybody's sort of going through the motions, but in reduced circumstances. You know, Bernard Lee's in it, and but he doesn't even speak. He's in one scene, and it's like well, I, I, cause I, I spoke Hammer at this point. Hammer's sort of coming to the end of the line now. The Exorcist has come out. Um, Night of Living Dead's come out. It, that sort of period romantic gothic horror film that Hammer made is sort of going out of fashion now. So they're trying to find ways of sort of competing with that, but they don't, they can't, they, you know, they can't compete with that sort of thing. Um, and there's one scene where Frankenstein has, he's killed a professor, played by Charles Lloyd Pack, another Hammer regular, Trigger's dad, for those. Uh, and he's sort of like, he's cut the top of his head off and he's removing his brain to put in a jar. And it's a very long protracted scene of um, Peter Cushing and Shane Bryant very, very slowly taking this brain out of the head and putting it into a jar somewhere. And it's like, it's not scary, it's not shocking, it's just gross, it's just unpleasant. It's almost like it's just saying, right, you want gore, here's gore. You know, mm -hmm. just point the camera at it and that's it. If that's what people want, we'll give them that. And, and there's an unpleasantness about it, a kind of seediness about it, that the director of the asylum, played by John Stratton, um, he's a lascivious, <laughs> sort of horrible person, and he's raped his own daughter. Oh, God. Again, it's rape just as sort of titillation kind of thing. Uh, and there's that sort of unpleasantness. Incestuous running. rapes as well. That's yeah, not yeah, something incestuous. you, it's you just... should drop into a film lightly, really. No, no. And of course, they don't make anything of that. It's just there for it's like shock effect. Right. And yeah, I don't know, it just... I seem to remember the whole film has a, a, a sense of the dying fall of Hammer. And there is a, a nice quality to that in that you get to sort of... You see closing bows from people like Patrick Troughton... Um, and Bernard Lee and Cushing, um, all looking a bit long in the tooth. It's yeah. good that they're there. Um, and also it's the final time that James Bernard... Um, oh, no, I, I, I think that he, James Bernard had a couple of scores. Anyway. But, yeah, you know, Terence Fisher, James Bernard, they're all there. Um, it's another John Elder script, I think. Um all, they're all there, all the kind of the, the people who've done such great stuff before. It's but, just, but it's it's very much a, a, an insipid kind yeah, of final. Bound. It lacks the grandeur. 
of it's, the earth. It lacks the scale. It lacks the vigor. It's one of those things where your kind of planet exists, mm. but you just wish it was good. It's you just kind of feel everybody's slightly demeaning for everybody mm. that they're going through the motions again, but in you know in on a lower budget and just you know to a smaller audience. Mm. No, I I I. I sort of, I, I don't dislike it, because it, again, there's too many talented people involved in the making of it for it to be sort of too bad, but it's, I don't know, it's, it's something rather sad about it, that it's, everything's just looks so diminished, uh, and, you know, kind of... I agree, it's, it's, it's going out with a whimper, not a bang, mm. it's a coin of cliche. Um, on that note, my friend, we're coming to the end of our allotted time, so... Oh, yeah. Uh, absolutely we are uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to discuss it's these films. been we love these films and we hope you know that's why we're doing this we want to communicate this sort of it's, this passion this enthusiasm we feel for these films that all these talented people made 40 50 years ago sort of like you know that we want people to see them these films are on the horror channel been listening to and now the podcast starts produced and released by ambidextrous solutions limited presented by howard whittock and td velasquez special thanks to greg hume for our original theme music and to brian gorman for our original artwork all dialogue and music clips from films tv shows and trailers are used for the purposes of criticism in the spirit of fair dealing as defined in UK law and fair use as defined in US law. No copyright infringement is intended. Please visit our home on the web www.andnowpodcast.com for more content and contact details. Or visit our Facebook pages at andnowpod or at leecushingpod. Follow us on Twitter at and now podcast or at Lee Cushing Podcast. If you'd like to donate to us, please visit patreon.com forward slash and now podcast. And now the podcast stops. <laughs>